Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. All right, thank you for that. Um, so, interesting, I was, I was uh, talking to Pastor Ben, and, and I said, hey man, what are you thinking you're going to teach? And he's like, I think I'm going to teach on forgiveness. And I said, oh wow, that's really interesting, because I'm going to teach on the unpardonable sin. Uh, so, uh, some of you have read your Bible, some of you are like, what? Uh, so, and I, it's a, you know, forgiveness, something that's not forgiven, are you, are you tracking with me a little? Okay, okay, good, let's, you'll find out, you'll find out. Matthew 12, as, as, uh, you guys have been in, in John, Sunday mornings, John 8. Uh, if you remember last week, the text that Pastor Ben had before you was, uh, they, they were accusing Jesus of having a demon. And, and you're like, what do you mean you were around before Abraham, right? All, all that kind of stuff. Well, in Matthew's gospel, for the last few chapters, the Pharisees have been trying to find ways to trap Jesus to say or do something that would cause him to be found guilty by the religious leaders so that they could take him outside the city walls and stone him to death. That has been their aim. That has been their goals. At the beginning of chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus uh, shows and then announces that he himself is Lord of the Sabbath, meaning he he he's able to say, look, I was there in creation. All things were created through me. I hold all things together. The whole idea of the Sabbath, I was there for that. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, when my disciples are picking heads of grain and having a little snack, they haven't violated anything, but you Pharisees are violating everything by adding to way over the top of what God already said. And and this has been this argument back and forth. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has been going face to face, if you will, with the Pharisees. Not, Not that Jesus has been trying to, you know, bust them down or anything, but he's trying to reach them. And, and sometimes I think as Christians, we forget that. Jesus wanted to reach the Pharisees. He died on the cross for Pharisees too, not just, you know, the rest of us miserable sinners. He died for, you know, for, for the religious hypocrites as well. And so Jesus has been trying to get through to them in all of this. Well, in chapter 12, Jesus heals somebody on a Sabbath, and, and it says that the, the Pharisees were, were indignant, they were full of wrath and rage and all those sort of things, which brings us to where we're at this morning in verse 22, as they desire to trap him by bringing somebody that was demon-possessed. Now, in, in the midst of this chapter, you're going to have two groups that are going to be represented. You're going to have one group over here, which is the, 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 the Pharisees or the, and the these guys are the religious leaders. You can have another group over here, which is the multitudes. Everybody else that's not a Pharisee. Okay? And that's how this breaks down. There's two groups of people that Jesus is talking to. Now, notice what it says here again in verse 22. Then one was brought to him, brought to Jesus, who was demon-possessed. Now, it seems in the Greek that the demon possession is what caused what it says next. He was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. Now, here's the deal. That's going to give you one of two reactions, right? Either the reaction is, wow, praise God, he's been delivered, right? Or the reaction of the of the Pharisees is, we don't like this at all. So look at what happened. So one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed, and they said, could this be the son of David? Now, why would they say son of David? Well, you guys are Calvary Chapel. You like Bible nerds like the rest of us. The, the term son of David is a messianic term. It is to say, as they see Jesus heal and deliver a demon-possessed man who now is not only not demon-possessed, but now he's no longer mute, and, and, and now he's no longer blind. And they look and they go, could this be the promised one? Is this the, the ancient of days who has come in the flesh right now? Is this the one that was promised from all the way back in Genesis 3.15? The, the, the one that had said that, that though Satan would bruise his heel, that this Messiah would come and crush Satan's head? Is that who this is? Is this God in the flesh? Is this our Redeemer, our Savior, our Messiah? Is that this one here? That's what the multitudes say. They're like, whoa, check this Jesus dude out, right? But look at what the Pharisees say. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Very interesting difference in the reactions. 
Look, outside of divine intervention, this was an impossible situation. This man had been so completely overtaken by a demon or possibly multiple demons. I'm not really sure the way that the Greek writes this, that he had lost his ability to see and to speak. But we know that there's nothing too hard for our God. No trouble or illness of the flesh, mind, or spirit of a man is too difficult for Jesus, the one with all authority and power to heal. Certainly no demonic power is any match for the creator of all things to deal with. So when the people saw his great power on display, they immediately had an anticipation that Jesus must be the promised Messiah standing in their midst. But the Pharisees, Look, the Pharisees, you've seen it in John's gospel on Sunday mornings here, the Pharisees have already shown their hearts towards Jesus. So when, when we, we know when they come with accusations, it's merely a manifestation of the hardness of their hearts. They're bitter and angry. And according to what Pilate will say at the end of Matthew's gospel, they're, they're jealous of Jesus. So no matter what Jesus says or does from this point on, they'll have some sort of negative response to him and his authority, even as he makes multiple clear demonstrations of his power and love. So they accuse him of casting out demons by the ruler of the demons, Beelzebub, or or Beelzebul, depending on your translation, who they attributed to being the ruler of the demons. We know that he's, they're talking about Satan himself from the way that Jesus is going to respond to them. This is what they're accusing him of. They're saying, Jesus, you're in cahoots with Satan. How, how, you're not casting out demons by, by the power of God at all. This is just all satanic stuff going on here. You have one group going, wow, maybe that's the promised one. This one that was born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, who's also called, you know, uh, 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 from, from Nazareth, this, this one who came from Egypt back. All these prophecies that were, that were said and fulfilled about Jesus. They're looking and going, wow. And then the religious leaders, the ones that are supposed to be studying the scripture, studying the text to know when their Messiah has come, have completely missed all of it and have said, this man's doing all this by the power of Satan. And this is a crazy time for Jesus to be coming and living in. The modern, you know, this everyday man is going like, wow. And all the religious leaders are going, no. This is, this is what it looks like here. Look at how, how, how this continues. Look at verse 25. It says that Jesus knew their thoughts and then said to them, and then we see the, the, the response here. But can we, can we just for a second, can we pause on that? Because I don't know about you, and, and, and I said this to first service, but I don't know about you. Sometimes, look, I've been saved, you know, 18 years. I've been reading the Bible 18 years. I've been teaching the Bible like 15 years or something like that, okay? And there are times when I see something in the text, and, and you, what do you do? You, you read it because you're used to reading it, and you turn the page. Can we just like, are you, we just sing, right? Like that you would like cause me to look at you again in awe and wonder, Right? When was the last time you paused at verses like this and just went like, whoa. But Jesus knew their thoughts. We, we almost are accustomed to that. But when was the last time you read that and just sort of went like, whoa. But Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, now some look at this and they go like, well, that doesn't prove divinity because there's gifts of the Spirit, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. It doesn't say that Jesus had some sort of understanding of what they might possibly be feeling. Said he knew their thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, but that trips me out sometimes. Like just to pause and go, like, "Wow, he knew their thought. He knew their motive. He knew their hearts, and yet he's still going to die on a cross for them, even after knowing their thoughts. Because right now their thoughts are swimming with ways that they can trap him and and, and get him to be killed." Jesus knew their thoughts, and so he responded to them like this. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Look at what he does. He goes, like, guys, you're being illogical here. Check this out. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Just notice, before we break this down, what Jesus is saying here, he goes, look, 
It is clear that the things I'm doing, I'm doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because I'm doing these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have proof right in front of you that the very kingdom of God has come upon the earth. And you'll be responsible for your refusal of that kingdom. Now, this is not Jesus being cruel. This is Jesus being very loving by saying, uh, red flag alert, warning, warning, ah, 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 you're about to go too far. Because look at what he says. He says, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he'll plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Notice the way that Jesus responds to to them. He he says something very, very plain to understand. Kingdoms don't divide against themselves and go to war with each other. That would bring destruction to the kingdom as a whole. And destroying your own kingdom is obviously counterproductive to a, a kingdom that desires to prosper and grow. Not to mention self destructive behavior is, is, is very unhealthy. Is it? Why would you think that Satan would cast out demons by the power of Satan? That kind of goes against the whole thing that Satan's trying to do, which is to destroy everybody. If say if you're if you're possessed by a demon, Satan surely doesn't want to have that demon cast out because he loses control over the opportunity to completely destroy your life to the point of eternity spent separated from God in hell. Jesus goes, well, "Why why would you think Satan would do that?" The question needed to be asked, how exactly would Satan benefit from casting out demons from people? And the answer is, he wouldn't. It doesn't benefit Satan for Jesus to show that the power of God is clearly, obviously superior to Satan. The point of their accusation is foolish. It's illogical. It's unfounded at best. But at worst, it's blasphemous. So the Pharisees, they're accusing Jesus of being spiritually in partnership with Satan here. It's the hardness of their heart that's clearly on display. And look at what Jesus says. He goes, wait a minute, I'm doing this by the by the Spirit of God. But he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, this is where things get interesting, because sometimes you read something and you go like, I'm not really sure I have a historical context for that. So let me give you a historical context. And 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 my, my wife, you know, said, like, make sure you tell, they don't know you, so make sure you tell them. I'm going to read to you from a couple of texts that are not Bible texts that are historical to tell you what the, the, the Pharisees did, okay? Just, just so you know, like, I'm not promoting Josephus as being Bible. I'm not promoting, you know, any of that stuff, okay? But but the the, the Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day had some really wacky ways of dealing with demoniacs. Josephus writes about one way uh, that they did this, and, and it's in his explanation of the wisdom of Solomon. And essentially what Josephus is saying, Solomon was so wise, he even came up with a way to get rid of demons, and here's how that goes. Okay, so this is out of Josephus's writing. He said, God also enabled him, speaking of Solomon, to learn that skill which expels demons which is a science useful and sanative, another word for healing, to men. He composed such incantations also by which distempers are alleviated, and he left behind him the manner of using exorcisms by which they drive away demons so that they never return. And this method of cure is of great force unto this day. For I have seen a certain man of my own country whose name was Eleazar releasing people that were demonical in the presence of Vespasian and his sons and his captains and the whole multitude of his soldiers, the manner of the cure was this. Check it out. This is how they, they you know, performed an exorcism uh, in these days. He put a ring that had a root of one of those sorts mentioned by Solomon to the nostrils of the demoniac, after which he drew out the demon through his nostrils. And when the man fell down immediately, he abjured him to return into him no more, making still mention of Solomon and reciting the incantations which he composed. And when Eliezer would persuade and demonstrate uh, to the spectators that he had such a power, he set a little way off a cup or a basin full of water and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn it and thereby to let the spectators know that he had left the man. What? Translation? Jesus says, when I cast out demons, you know that the Holy Spirit is at work. When your sons cast out demons, what do they do? 
They get a root, they dig up a root out of the ground, they make a nose ring out of it, they stick it up somebody's nose, and then they rip the demon out of the nose like a big hachu or something. And as it and as it goes out, then then the person you know performing that has a little cup on the side of the uh, of the you know of the thing over here. And when the demon leaves, it oh look, it flipped the cup over. Whoa, whoa! And they mentioned Solomon's name. Jesus goes, we're we're doing this in in the name of the Father. This is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. This isn't some shenanigans. I'm literally setting people free because my Father has sent me to seek and to save the lost. By whom do your sons cast out demons? This is a, this is a clear question with an accusation behind it. Who exactly, if you say that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then who exactly do your, your sons cast out demons with these weird shenanigans? There's another one. We, we won't go too much into it, but there's the apocrypha book of, of Tobit. Uh, if you, if you like me grew up in, you know, I grew up in a Catholic home, so I had a Catholic Bible. And so I went to references because I had read about it. Essentially what happens is in the book of Tobit, Tobias is told by this angel Raphael that the way that, that he's supposed to marry a woman who's demon possessed, that this is what God wants him to do, marry a demon possessed woman. But don't worry, there'll come a time when you can get rid of the demon. And here's what you're going to do. This great fish that almost swallowed you, you're going to catch it instead, then you're going to cut out its guts, and when you're around the woman that you're supposed to marry, who's demon-possessed, you're going to throw the guts on the fire, and the smell's going to be so bad, the demon's just going to run away from her. Okay, but do you understand why Jesus would then say, with those things being the norm, that Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, by whom exactly, tell me, please, by whom exactly do your sons cast them out? Jesus is making a very clear distinction. There is a real, genuine work of God going on here. And you guys are settling for the show, for the shenanigans. You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to pick on anybody, right? But I would say you can, today, you can see a genuine experience of the Holy Spirit's power. But you can turn on certain TV channels and see people putting on a show. And Jesus goes, hey, what's real? What's real and what's fake here? Jesus clearly casting out demons in the power of the Holy Spirit. No need for all those other strange acts to be done. So, yeah, the Pharisees don't really have any room to talk about using Satan's ways to to, to cast out demons. We don't have time to go into it, but this is why you see weird stuff happen there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19 with the seven sons of Sceva. What do they do? They go and they say, hey, we cast out these demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And what does the demon say? Well, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but I don't know who you are. And what happens? The demon jumps on top of those seven dudes, beats them up, and they leave. They run out of the house naked and beat up. Because, no, 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 there's something genuine about what Jesus does as he's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. As Luke says in, in, in Luke eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus says it, but it's recorded in Luke as Jesus saying, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. Here in, in our text, the power of God. You see, it's proof of his power and authority even over the unseen realm. And this is worth pointing out because Matthew's emphasis in his gospel account is that Jesus is the great, all-powerful king of kings. So powerful is Jesus that he's able to plunder even the strong man's house. Notice again what it says in verse 29. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he'll plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I'm casting out demons, not by the power of Satan, but I'm casting out demons over and above, beyond the power of Satan, using the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm setting people free. I am plundering the strong man's house. This man's body was the home of Satan, if you will, the home of a demon, and I've cast him out because I'm stronger, I'm above, I'm more powerful, I have the authority. Look, Satan has no power over Jesus Christ. Instead, Jesus is powerful and able to rescue all who are under Satan's power and authority. And not only is Jesus powerful to save, but once we're saved by God's grace through our faith in Christ Jesus, Satan has no power over the lives of those who are in Christ. Those who have been purchased by his blood have been redeemed from Satan's power that fell over mankind in the Garden of Eden. Thus, we are set free from sin and death. 
And that's because Jesus has forcefully taken us back from under the grip of Satan, plundering us away, if you will, from his destructive and deadly power. I like what David Guzik says in his commentary. He says, Jesus looks at every life delivered from Satan's domination and says, I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan one life at a time. Look, there is nothing in our life that must stay under Satan's domination. The one who binds the strong man will plunder his goods, and his name is Jesus. Now, all of that, we have this sort of tie-in verse, verse 30, which ties in everything that happened into the rest of what we're going to cover this morning. Look at verse 30 again. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Because this is really important for us, and let me tell you why. Jesus says there's no neutral ground. That a person is either for Jesus or against Jesus. A person will either gather to Jesus or be scattered away from Jesus. Let me tell you why this is important. This is not a scare tactic. Number one, that's important for us to know. Jesus doesn't give us scare tactics. Jesus isn't about intimidation. Jesus is about love. And love tells the truth. Right? Paul instructed the church in Ephesus to speak the truth in love so we would all grow up, mature in our faith. Jesus says this as a clear warning to go, listen, you Pharisees that are saying I'm doing this in the power of Satan, you need to know you're either for me or you're against me. This is important for you and I as Christians today who desire to see people saved. Listen, when when Jesus came into our lives, he placed within us his Holy Spirit and that's why the old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. We have a new heart within us. We no longer love the way we used to with the best amount of love we could in the Greek phileo love, which was like, I got your back, you got my back. You you help me out, I'm going to help you out. You do me wrong one too many times, I wash my hands of you, I'm done. No, we have the agape love of God within us from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 says, it's the greatest of all the gifts and the very gift. You know, agape love is what all the other, you know, charismatic gifts are weighed out by. Because we love people with the love that God has placed into our hearts, It is important for us to know that the people that we love and we talk to who go like, I'm cool. You know, Jesus is cool and all. Like, I'm I'm all right with Jesus. I'm not not a Christian. Like, I'm not all crazy Bible people like you. But, you know, like, Jesus is okay. It's important that we understand that Jesus said that the person that approaches him that way is against him. Not so we can beat him up. Right? Not so we can, like, join the, the jerks for Jesus club and be like, you know, you know, Jesus said that if you're not for me, you're against me. Like, you're going to go to hell. So you need to make, no, no. So that we can see the condition of what's going on so that we will pray, so that we will love, so we'll be salt and light, so, so we can love tangibly those people. So they will see the love of Christ because we want them to be for him, not against him. And this is because we understand that hell and heaven are real and eternal. There's this crazy thing happening in the, in the, in the theological realm around us, okay? All the, all the super heady dudes that are sitting in offices and studying the text and all that, a, a lot of them have come to this, this viewpoint called annihilationalism now, which says this, that if a person goes to hell, it's not so bad because they're just going to burn up real quick. But the book of Revelation says that hell is a place of eternal torment. This should trouble you and I. It should not be like, well, I'm good. I'm going to heaven, so like, forget everybody else. It should be, I, I can't bear the thought that anybody around me would spend eternity separated from God in torment. Do you understand? This is, this is why Jesus says these things to us. He doesn't say this so, you know, some dude could be in the pulpit all spitting and banging. You're for Jesus or against. Not that. It is that Jesus goes like, I'm giving you every opportunity to come to me. Because this works only one way. 
Which leads us into what, what we say, see here in verse 31 and 32. Jesus says, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore in the scripture, you gotta figure out what it's, what it's there for. Well, it's there for everything from verse 22 down. Therefore, because of all the things that we covered, Jesus says, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Context is key. We don't want to be cherry pickers. We don't want to just pick a verse and then just run off over here with it. The context of this is that the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the, uh, uh, or by the power of Satan. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the kingdom has come and you must acknowledge that. This is the context. Context is key. And so in the context of what's happening, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit here is attributing the work of casting out demons, which Jesus says is clearly done in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit with Satan. That's the context here. But is there a broader context? Well, there is in the broad sense that the, the meaning of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is just that, attributing his work, because the Holy Spirit is a he, right? I mean, like, you know, we're all Calvary folks, so, so we know that. The Holy Spirit's not an it. It's not a vapor. It's not a mist. It's not, a, you know, like the Holy Spirit isn't a, you know, like, look, it's the Holy Spirit. No more than love is like, oh, look, it's love. It's not a noun. Not a thing. He, the Holy Spirit, to say that, that his work in and through people's lives is, is actually a work of Satan, that would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So for instance, if someone goes and shares their testimony of how Jesus has saved them and they're now a new creation in Christ and they've shown clear evidence that their lives are different as they've been changed by the Holy Spirit and somebody hears that testimony and mocks God in their hearts and refuses to believe that that it's true, they are in the broadest sense of the term blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But to be more specific, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the utter rejection of Jesus Christ even to a person's final breath. And the reason that that is the rejection, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is because the ultimate role or job, if you will, of the Holy Spirit is that he draws all people under Christ Jesus and convicts the hearts of sin and a desperate need of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. One of the last and most important conversations that Jesus had with his disciples takes place from between chapters John 13 and John 16. And it's in the 14th chapter of John that Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come for their benefit, while in the 15th and 16th chapters of John, he tells the disciples what the role of the Holy Spirit will be when he comes after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. He says this in John 15, starting in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for the sin. Jesus saying, look, I came, God in the flesh communicated clearly what is sin, what is not sin. And because I've done that, they have no excuse for their sin. And he goes on to say, he who hates me hates my father also. You can't say, you know, like I love God, but I'm not into this Jesus stuff. That doesn't work. They're undivided. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are undivided. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the world, uh, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Well, over in in John chapter 16, Jesus further explains the ministry of the Holy Spirit and says, Nevertheless, John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin 
because they don't believe in me. What is the ultimate sin? Not believing in Jesus. Why? Well, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Where did, where, what did Jesus do after ascending? He ascended to where? The right hand of the Father, proving his righteousness of judgment because the role of this world is judged. The role of the Holy Spirit is to come and to convict the hearts of all people that they need Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the righteous one who is seated at the right hand of the Father where he belongs in majesty, but also to bring conviction. Why? Because when we do what fallen people do, we earn the reward of the fallen, which is eternity separated from our God. What happened in the garden? Everything was cool. Everything was good. God showed up in the cool of the day, every day, hanging out. Right? God was there like, hey, Adam, let's play a little game here. Let's play the name game. What's that? Check this out. What do you want to call that? Oh, oh, a giraffe. Let's call that giraffe. All right, let's call it giraffe. What do you want to call this? Let's call that an elephant. Awesome elephant. What do you want to call this? Let's call it a rat. All right, let's call it a rat. There was this intimacy, this fellowship between God and, and us, his creation. The people who are the apple of his eye, the ones who were made in his image. And when Adam and Eve partook of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they fell and this world fell with them. And so the father since his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life because the father did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to tell every person on this planet, God loves you so much he sent his son for you. But if you reject that, you reject the one and only way that God has made for all mankind to be saved. This is why the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unpardonable. So he says, of sin, because they don't believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is the role of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to show people their great need for Jesus Christ just as the Holy Spirit did in my life and in your lives. Now, interestingly enough, Matthew and Mark record this idea or, or, or this, this statement here of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They, they record this, Matthew and Mark do, right after the accusation of the Pharisees that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. While Luke inserts this just after his three woes to the Pharisees, you know, Jesus' three woes to the Pharisees and the lawyers that revealed their hypocrisy because they were willing to uphold their own tradition over the very law of God and the heart of the lawgiver himself. In Luke's account, Jesus says it like this after the three woes, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. But then look how he follows this. To show the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? Meaning they're worthless. And not one of them is forgotten before God. Even the most worthless of things. A, a little, a little, you know, sparrow. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Very important piece of information for us because we're, we're, we're not, not, not only were these Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, rejecting Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God, they were saying with their mouths and in their hearts, and Jesus knew their thoughts, 
that the work of God done in the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ in casting out demons was done in the power of the leader of the demons himself. And in so doing, they were denying God's power, God's love, God's faithfulness, God's ability, God's holiness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's sacrifice, and God's salvation. Listen, it's important for us to realize this, to understand this. The heart of God is that mankind is saved. Do you understand that, right? Like God, God didn't set up Christianity, the church, you know, to be like the cool it crowd, but to be the redeemed crowd, the saved crowd, the people of salvation. These things that we read are, 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 are not there for us to use as ammunition against people, but to use as ammunition uh, uh, against an unseen spiritual foe. These things are here so that we can understand the heart of God and how to live out and express the heart of God to even the hardest heart there is. Because if a person continues to reject the work of God's Holy Spirit and they refuse God's clear offer of salvation in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, there comes a point, it seems, in the text, in the Scripture, when God will let them have their own way. In fact, it seems from the examples of Pharaoh during the days of Moses as well as King Balak and King Sihon in the days of the wilderness wanderings towards the end of the 40 years there in the desert that a person can so harden their hearts against God that the Lord will allow and even complete their hardness of heart to the point of no return. Not that God himself desires to see anybody separated from him for all of eternity, but that God is giving the person their deepest desire and removing, it might seem, their, their, their opportunity for salvation because of their hardened and rebellious heart. I don't know where that line is. I don't know how it all understands. I know how it all works. I know that God's ways are far beyond my ways and my comprehension. But it would seem that, that we have a God. And look, this is a, the subject of, of a great debate for the last 500 years. You, you drive yourself silly trying to, you know, figure out what, you know, what did Luther mean with the 95 thesis and was this part of it? And, 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 you know, Calvin came along and Zwingli was there and, and, you know, Tyndale was there and all these guys and all. This isn't even about Calvinism versus Arminianism or any of that stuff. This is about God says, I'm going to draw you. I'm going to draw you. I've sent my spirit. I want you. I want you. I want you. I want you. And if you tell me no enough times, There's some line somewhere in everybody's life until their final breath where there is a line and you can cross that line and be hardened. This is important for us because there is a whole world around us. Guys, there's a whole city of Lubbock around you that needs Jesus. We got to do what we can without being weird or forceful or trying to think that it comes upon. Look, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's about being led by the Spirit and being obedient to the way he leads us to show the love of Jesus to people before they find where that line is and go to the other side. I don't know where the line is. I don't know how it works, but it seems from, from Scripture that there is one there. Think about it like this, ladies. If there's a man pursuing you, and he goes, man, I love you. Oh, I love you so much. You are wonderful and beautiful. I love you. I, would you be mine? I will take care of you. I, I will care for you. I will be a blessing to you. I'll, I'll protect you. All of these things provide for you. Will you be mine? And you go, get lost, creep. Okay. But then he comes back. More flowers. But I love you so much. Let me show you my love. I, I desire that you be mine forever. Will, will, you, will, you, will you marry me? And you go, get lost, dude. And he keeps coming back. And finally, you say get lost enough times, you would hope the guy would leave. But what if he shows up and he goes, woman, you will love me now. Is that love? Doesn't love require a choice? Doesn't love require that you have an opportunity to respond? This is that great debate for the last 500 years. 
Does God make it so that, you know, he's irresistible to some and to others? He's just already determined before they were born that they were just kindling for hell? I, I don't think so. I think the Holy Spirit has come because God desires that all of us should be saved. And yet there seems to come a point in which we say, no dice. And no doubt that grieves the heart of God. What do you and I as the church do about that? I mean, look, we're two weeks out till Easter. How do we show the love of God to people that are right on the line? I don't know. We follow the Spirit. There's no, there's no checklist. There's no book for this. But I know this. God said in Genesis 6, 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. John Corson said it like this, you can only hear the message and see the miracles so many times before God will finally say, okay, have your way. You don't want to acknowledge my reality very well. My spirit will no longer speak to you and then you're lost. At that point, you not only will not believe, at that point, you cannot believe. Simply put, Jesus isn't going to force anybody to believe upon him. That would not be consistent with what the Bible teaches about the love of God. Love isn't forced. It's given by choice to receive or to reject. Now, how do you deal with the person, whether you're one of the people in the room or, or you're talking to somebody who goes, man, am I guilty of that? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I said no one too many times? The good news is this. If you're concerned with whether or not you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit or you're talking with somebody and they're concerned about whether or not they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they haven't because they still care what God thinks. They're still concerned it's that person that goes, I don't care. By the way, I used to say that too. Don't believe everybody that says, I don't care. Chances are they care. They're just embarrassed. So Jesus lovingly, sternly warning the Pharisees that they are dangerously close, if not already past the point of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and completely rejecting him. And as a result, they'll spend eternity separated from God along with the demons that Jesus has been casting out. Don't, don't miss all of this. Jesus casts out demons by his grace and offers salvation by his grace. And the one who utterly and completely rejects Jesus will not be forced to spend eternity with him but will instead spend eternity with Satan in a place that was custom-made for Satan and those who follow him. Matthew 25, 41 says, well, then, then he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan, God didn't make hell for people. Hell was created for Satan and the fallen angels. On the other hand, God did have a plan for people. Those who would believe upon Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit brings conviction will receive forgiveness for their sins, salvation from hell and death, and spend eternity in a place custom made just for them. We know it. We've all read it. We've heard it at funerals. I'll read it from a different translation just to put some freshness to it. John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. God is gracious. Either way, God is gracious. Our rejection or belief does not remove one bit of God's grace. It simply brings to pass his grace in one form or another, either in his helping us to believe by using the Holy Spirit to draw us unto himself or in his acceptance of our utter rejection of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son and only provision for salvation. And you know this church, right? You know that there's no other way, right? Because what follows in John 14 is that Thomas goes like, well, you know, we don't really know where you're going. Jesus, where are you going? And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has made one way of salvation. And you may meet a lot of people that think there's a lot of ways. I have, I have a friend who in New Mexico, you know, fairly popular Christian hip-hop guy, and he has a, a line in one of his songs where he says, all roads, all roads lead to heaven, but in my case, I'm loving it. 
The idea of like, oh, everybody's going to meet God at some point. But not on their terms. On his. We, we sang a bunch of songs earlier, and, 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 it, and it reminded me of this, that this chapter, <laughs> Philippians 2, Paul, Paul says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name. Check this out, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, let's, let, let's, let's close with these last few verses because it ties in the thought and, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll sing a song and dismiss together. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. This is something John the Baptist called the Pharisees as they went out and argued with him as he was baptizing people at the Jordan. Brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle or worthless word men may speak, They will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. The Pharisees have made the contents of of their hearts known by the words that they spoke against Jesus in accusing him of doing things in accordance with Satan instead of in accordance with the Holy Spirit's power. But Jesus lets them know their true condition. And he does so by calling them something that they were used to by John the Baptist already, brood of vipers, sons of wickedness, or if you will, the sons of Satan. And here's the deal. Words do matter in the sense that they expose our hearts. And that's why Jesus said by our words, we would either be justified or condemned. And that again is because the words that come out of our mouths are truly a reflection of what's in our hearts. So what's the most positive example we have of this? <laughs> we we'll close with this, Romans 10, verses 9 through 11. Again, I'll read out of another translation just to freshen it up for you. Paul writes to the church in Rome, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. You see, a tree is known by its fruit, and our hearts are known by our words. And the closing question is, what is the confession of your heart? Father, you have been so good to us, so gracious, so merciful, so loving, that you would send your only begotten Son. You love us so much that you would take your Son from his rightful place in heaven and you would cause him to come down amongst dogs like us and put on flesh and deal with us to display how great your love is. To make the way possible for our sin to be forgiven for your relationship with us to be restored both now and for all of eternity. And God, I understand I used to be one. Some think that is close-minded and and narrow and, 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 and unfair that there's only one way. But God, I know that is so not fair that you even provide the way. God, I know my heart, and I know the hearts of plenty of the people here, that we deserve sin and death for eternity in hell. 
We have earned hell by our sin. And yet, you graciously sent your son Jesus to make a way for us, to make the one and only way for us. That which we do not deserve, you have given. And what we do deserve, you have spared us. Because you are wonderful. And this morning, before we walk out the door, say amen, go about our day, eat lunch and all the things. If you have come in here and you don't know Jesus, you have rejected and rejected and rejected. I pray you know how much he loves you. I pray you know the great depths he has gone through to to get your attention and to call you to himself. Or perhaps you've come in here this morning and and you just haven't been paying a lot of attention to the Holy Spirit at all. Oh, you're saved, but you're just kind of doing your own thing. And the Lord would call you back to himself to a deeper intimacy this morning. If you're in one of those two camps, before we walk out the doors and all that stuff, man, we just raise your hand before the Lord. This is not about joining some church or religion or any of that stuff, man. This is just about a time just to, just to get your heart straight with the Lord. Anybody at all this morning? Amen. Anybody else? Mm. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for the hearts that you have touched and changed this morning, for the ways that you have drawn us to you, for the things you've revealed to us about your great love, for the hand that was raised, Lord. You know the details. You know everything going on there. May you pour forth of your spirit abundantly, overwhelmingly upon that person whom you love. God, as we leave this place, would you continue speaking to us, continue drawing us to yourself, continue having your way in and through our lives. Would you bring healing to those that are sick and in need and, 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 and hurting this morning? Would you bring provision, God? And thank you that you've always been our great provider. Would you provide for our homes? Would you provide for this church? Would you bless those who give cheerfully? you just do something fresh and amazing in our lives for we love you and we thank you in Jesus name Amen Hey this is Pastor Josh I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus if it has we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.